It's Friday, June 23rd, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. The public comment period has now closed for General Permits 5 and 5A, DEP's new methane rules for natural gas. And this makes Pennsylvania the latest in a growing number of states working to reduce gas leaks that waste fuel, drive up energy costs, and contribute to climate change. These rules apply only to new or modified unconventional gas facilities. The next step in Pennsylvania will be holding existing facilities to the same standard. Now, as this process unfolds, it's helpful to study how other states have navigated it before us. And that is why this week's episode of Pennsylvania Legacies takes place not in Pennsylvania, but in Colorado. I recently made a trip there to meet some of the people who helped make Colorado the first state in the U.S. to regulate methane back in 2014. At the time, it was contentious, complicated, and a bit confusing. But this story has a happy ending. Three years later, Colorado's lowering emissions. Regulators are happy, environmental groups are happy, the public's happy, and oil and gas companies are happy. Why? Well, the answer has as much to do with the way these rules were developed as with the rules themselves. To understand how that happened, we sit down this week with Martha Rudolph. She's director of environmental programs with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. I'd like to first start off by talking about uh, the methane rules that Colorado adopted, I believe, in 2014. Mm-hmm. What's in those rules? What do they require? The rules do a number of things. Let me let me give you a little a little background on why we focused on what we focused on the rules. I think that would sort of set the table a little bit better than to just jump in and say what they require. Because I think it's important to know why we required, why we focused on those parts of the rules that we focused on. So uh, in about 2012, this is sort of chronologically here, in 2012 the governor made the statement that he wanted us to work on regulations that would minimize methane emissions from oil and gas operations to the greatest extent possible. Prior to that time, we had received funding from the state legislature to uh, purchase IR infrared FLIR cameras. So we spent the first year looking at sort of training ourselves, looking at the medium and smaller operations, training those operators on where we saw most emissions, leaks. Uh, And because of that information, we knew that storage tanks were a a primary contributor to emissions of whatever, you know, hydrocarbons, VOCs, methane, and that basically leaks, valves, et cetera, were a source of, uh, of emissions. So when we first started talking to stakeholders uh, about the uh, proposed regulation, we've, we really kind of zeroed in on storage tanks and then on leak, deten- leak detection and repair kind of regulations. So those are sort of the two areas that we focused on. Ultimately, what the regulation does is focus on those two areas. We have uh, storage tank regulations um, that, uh, depending on the size of the actual annual emissions, the uh, number of instrument uh, inspections varies depending on how many, you know, what the, what the size of the emissions are that comes out. The more emissions you have, the more frequent the inspections are. There is a requirement uh, for storage tanks, I think, greater than six tons a year to develop a storage tank emission management plan. 
which is a plan that will describe how the operator plans to meet a no venting requirement, operations with no venting. On uh, leak detection and repair, again, it's based upon the size of the operation, the, the uh, quantity of emissions that are, are emitted on an annual basis will dictate how frequently the inspections are to occur. Ongoing inspections are required, olfactory, visual, and oral inspections. Which is just simply, simply five senses. Going out and looking and smelling and listening. And if you, you know, if you see something, if you smell something, then fix it. But again, depending on the size of the operation, you still have to go out and do some kind of instrument inspection. And if you find a, a, a leak, or, uh, then you need to repair it, hopefully within five days. If you can't repair it within five days, then you can have up to 15 days. It's also something that is, I think has worked really well. If we can go back a little bit to the, the process of developing the rules uh -huh. and talk a little bit more about the relationship that you had working with operators and whoever else was at the table in those conversations. Sure. Uh, we knew that this would be very controversial because this is you know, not very many states had really approached methane regulation. Everybody had looked at, I think not everybody, but certainly many states had looked at VOC limitations, uh, largely because of ozone, for example. But methane was a, was a new creature, and we knew that it would be controversial, and it was. So we, again, started the stakeholder process in the fall of 2012. Uh, the rulemaking was in February of 2014, so that gives you a, a time frame for how, how long the stakeholder process took, which we knew would take a while, uh, given the, the number of issues, the, the concern with the regulated community, with uh, landowners, with uh, the environmental groups, uh, with municipalities, local governments. A lot of people were very interested in, in what we were doing and wanted to participate. We had uh, a wide variety of positions on it uh, and a wide variety on you know, what exactly we should do, how far we should go, uh, how fast we should go, what we should regulate, how we should regulate it, et cetera. So we uh, started to, to break down the meetings. We would have meetings with just industry. We would have meetings with uh, environmental groups, trying to figure out what were the positions of the, the various stakeholders. We then tried to come up with smaller groups of representatives from all the major stakeholder groups, had meetings with them, moving, progressing very slowly forward because again, uh, depending on the stakeholder, they were willing to sit down at the table and try to hammer something out or they were just even questioning our authority to regulate methane to begin with. That well, that was a threshold question for many of the stakeholders, that believing that we didn't have that authority. What we ended up doing is we encouraged groups to meet separately. You know, we, we said, look, if, if our being in the room, if the state being in the room makes conversation difficult, we're fine with groups talking with, amongst themselves and trying to figure out what makes the most sense that will bring them all to the table with some kind of consensus position. And that ultimately is what happened. Uh, EDF uh, worked very hard with three operators, uh, Noble, Anadarko, and Encana. They, uh, and probably others, you know, because we weren't in the room, but they spent, as I understand it, a, a lot of time hammering out what works, what doesn't work. Part of the issue for us as regulators is we don't 
um, we don't fully understand how the regulations can really be implemented in the field, how difficult it is for an operator to implement them. Um, the, it, you know, if the language that we're using really makes sense to them and, and how they, like I said, how they can comply with the requirements. So it was really critical that you get the operators buy-in to really think about how, what's an effective regulation. At the same time, we wanted to make sure that the, whatever we came up with were meaningful and really achieved true reductions in hydrocarbons, you know, not just methane, but across the board, but including methane. So we needed experts in the field that, had, that knew how to measure it, knew how to really understand what the reductions could, could be or what would be expected from what, we were, what were being proposed. So I think having the, the operators in EDF and whoever else might have been in the room talking about it uh, was, was very helpful. Uh, they came up with a strategy, a proposal. They brought it to us here at the health department we worked with them on uh, modifying it, not much, but so that we could have, uh, we, we were able to implement it because of course it has to be something that we can actually look at and implement, put in the regulations, make sense for us from, a, from the regulator's standpoint. So we modified it a little bit. That's what was introduced to the Air Quality Commission in the, in the actually it has to get noticed, but the hearing was in, this, in the spring of, of uh, 2014. Uh, I think it was a five-day hearing over the weekend. It was again very controversial. Five days is is a long hearing for any of our commissions, but certainly on one subject, the Air Commission. Uh, it remained controversial. There was a fair amount of opposition to it. Uh, nevertheless, the Commission adopted the, the regulation. Uh, pretty much as it was introduced, they made some minor modifications to it. Uh, after it was adopted, we were, I will confess, uh, uh, concerned about whether or not it would be challenged. Uh, it wasn't. We were very pleased. As a matter of fact, the trade associations in Colorado rolled up their sleeves and worked with us on training modules, on uh, frequently asked questions. They helped us get the word out on how to comply with it. Uh, and I think it's been a I think it's been a success. We're like with any regulation, we're getting feedback and we're looking at how can we clarify some things or make things uh, more understandable. Uh, maybe shift things around a bit so that it makes more sense. Uh, but so far, I think we're we're achieving the goals that we were looking for. I mean, it certainly sounds like vindication for the approach you took of, of bringing mm -hmm. everybody into the conversation. I think that's very important. Uh, you know, it, it really works best if you can really bring people to the table that are truly interested in how can we make this work. I think the fact that the governor really wanted this to happen certainly helped bring parties to the table to, to try to work this out. But I also think there just was an understanding that we're gonna, you know, we're going to do this um, and we want to do it right and we want to do it so that it has meaningful emission reductions but in a way that really uh, works for the industry, that, that the industry can implement without a lot of hassle, with a lot of, a lot of cost. Um, what we anticipated, and we don't have current information on this, but what we anticipated that it would cost industry, it's going to sound like a lot, $43 million a year. But when you look on, on it as a, on a per ton basis, 
and some of the other things that we require in the air program, it's actually really, really reasonable. I'm interested in more about, and you talked about the controversy, the shape that mm -hmm. took beyond that threshold question of can you even regulate right. methane? What were the concerns that people were voicing at the time? I think that the concerns were uh, that uh, it was going to cost industry a lot to do this. It was going to be uh, difficult for industry to implement. Uh, it's. I think these are they're not unusual issues that are raised in rulemaking hearings when you're proposing a new set of requirements for any industry in any environmental program. There's going to be concerns about how easy is it going to be. It's just one more thing that our folks have to do out in the field and, and how often do we have to put this together and what kind of reporting requirements and what kind of a hassle is this going to be. So I think it's, it's all, it's, pretty human nature not to want to add to your workload for things that you don't really think add value to what you're, you're thinking your program is. But I think overall, industry really understands that there's a social license to operate. And there, there are uh, community concerns about many industries, but oil and gas in particular. And in Colorado, that is maybe not more true than in other areas, but it certainly is, is true here where the ability to, to extract the oil and the gas uh, has improved because of horizontal drilling and fracking. So they're going into areas that are really where there's an interface with communities. And the communities are very concerned about what does this mean for them. And so I think that, that the industry is recognizing that it really has to be a good neighbor and it really has to take into consideration some of the things that maybe 10, 20 years ago it really didn't have to. So I think that you know it is looking at this a little differently than perhaps it would have before. And yes, we have to we have to do these things now. This is part of who we are as an industry, to make sure that we're doing the right things for human health and for the environment. And so you know it was controversial at the time, but I I think things are hopefully things are changing. Is there a business argument for oh. controlling emissions? Like yes. did that speak to them at all? Oh yeah, business argument, of course. So uh, when you're releasing any kind of hydrocarbon, that's a product. And so there, yeah, I think the, the industry uh, would prefer to keep the methanes, the ethanes, the hydrocarbons in the system because it's a product that they could sell. So obviously there's a cost benefit here, but yes, if there's a way that they can keep it in the system, I think it's valuable to the industry to do that. And I think they would agree. But then some people would say to that, well, why do you need regulation? You know, why do you need the government to be involved at all? If the market will encourage this behavior anyway, shouldn't that be enough? You'd think that the market would encourage this behavior. But again, it's sort of a, it's a balance. Um, what's the cost of keeping it into this, in the system versus letting some of it go? And I, and I think part of it is with the IR cameras, really understanding how much is actually being released into the atmosphere, how much they actually are losing. I'm not sure that the industry really had a good handle on just how much of their product was escaping into the atmosphere. With the IR cameras and seeing this, I think they're actually seeing this, that, that maybe, hey, there's more than we thought. We need to keep it in the system. We need to do what we can to keep it in the system. So again, you know, the little tiny valves that might be leaking, yeah, maybe they're willing to let that go from a product perspective. But there's some 
pretty significant emissions that are being released that I know that industry is happy about crack it down, cranking it down and making sure they're not being released. Well, and is it also kind of the case that you have a spectrum of companies, some of which uh, the, the stewardship thing is more important to them maybe, or for whatever reason, they're already predisposed to taking some of these measures on their own, but they're at a competitive disadvantage if they're the only ones doing that? I, th I think that's right. There are always going to be companies out there that find it more difficult to comply with requirements that they don't think add value to their bottom line. I mean, that is also human nature in some respects. And so uh, there is a reason for having the regulations to, to level the playing field, to make it fair for everybody, so that you don't have operators who are perhaps really just operating in the margin, which is unfortunate. But we need to have a level playing field so that everybody, people that are doing, the, the, the operators that are doing what they should be doing and complying with the requirements, keeping the product in the system that has value, protecting our environment and our public health, are not punished for doing that economically through the, the competition with others that are not doing the same thing. We really need to keep the, the playing field level. So this is several years ago. We flash forward to 2017. The rules have been in place for a while now. What has the impact been? Uh, what were the goals that you set out for yourselves at the beginning, and are those being met so far? So I think we, we were hoping just to reduce emissions significantly, and I think we've achieved that. Between 2013 and 2015, which is the, the latest that I've, data that I have, we went from 42% of the sites that we inspected had at least one leak to 9% had at least one leak. So that's a significant decrease. Now, it doesn't quantify the leaks in the sense of how big is the leak, but it quantifies the number of leaks. So we're feeling like getting the word out, getting, getting operators to actually look at their emissions, what the leaks are, what's happening, fixing them, uh, you know, either on-site immediately, which we're told a lot of them, you just take a wrench out there and crank it down and you're fine. I think it's working. I think it's working. We're very pleased with the results. And what are, uh, what are companies telling you about how this has affected them for good or ill? You know, we, we uh, have been expecting feedback from companies, uh, either, you know, telling us, well, telling us of the problems with the, with the regulation and, you know, like I said, we're, we're looking at some of the issues uh, in, in how we interpret some of the language. Uh, but so far, we've not really heard any major complaint, any significant complaint. We've not heard anything about how this is really costing us too much money and it's really not achieving any significant goal. Why are we continuing to do this? We're not hearing those things. So from, from our perspective, we think that it's, and, and, and frankly, we're hearing from companies who talk about how Colorado has a great regulatory program, it's working very well. We see ads on TV from the oil and gas companies that say that. So I'm thinking it's probably working pretty well for them too. I'll just interject. I randomly had a conversation last night with a guy who turned out to be an oil field worker of mm -hmm. some sort. 
and who had been around and worked in different states. And one of the first things he mentioned was how he noticed the differences and the discrepancies in the regulatory environments in different states. Right. You know, so I told him I was from Pennsylvania. He said, it's the wild west out there. And I said, so what is that, you know, how does that affect you? Do you mm -hmm. have a preference one way or the other? And he said, well, you know, in Colorado, sometimes it, it takes a little longer to do the job or, you know, there are complications, but I feel a lot safer. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm not worried I'm going to get hurt. That's right. basically his take. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think that we want re regulations to be reasonable because we don't, you know, we appreciate the oil and gas industry here. It is a, it is a vital part of our economy. Hopefully it'll be a vital part of our economy for, for some time. But I think everybody understands it has to be done safely and, and it has to be done in a manner that protects public health and the environment. And those are all issues that are gonna be ongoing for some time. So the more that we can really work on those issues and, and try to make it as safe and as healthy uh, 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 an industry as possible, I think it benefits all of us. You know, we're, I think one of the things that industry is also telling us is they like to know what they're supposed to do. They may not like having 20 things to do as opposed to five, but if you tell them here are all the things you have to do, it's gonna stay this way for a while, this is it, and they have the list and they know it's consistent and this is, then they'll figure out how to make it happen and it'll work, it'll work for them. So I think that's what we've tried to do here is establish regulations that, have mean, that are meaningful for public health and the environment but that are also not particularly difficult for industry to implement and are not particularly costly for industry to implement. So I think you look at all those things and if you can achieve that, then, then you've got, a, I think, a winning combination that will work for, for everyone. It's not without its issues. As I said, we're, we'll continue to work with industry to really fine tune some of the, fine -tune some of the, con the, the concerns that it has with implementing the regulations. We'll continue to try to improve them from that perspective to make them more efficient, easier to implement, more understandable. But by the same time, we want to continue to achieve the, the emission reduction goals that we're, that we're wanting. So. so why do you think that this seems to be working out? And correct my premise if I'm wrong, but this seems to be playing much better at the state level than at the federal level. I know that, that that process is kind of ongoing in some arenas, but it, it, if nothing else, uh, the rollout just seems to have gone much smoother uh, down here. Yeah, I, I think there are a few reasons for that. I think one significant reason is the way states are able to do rulemaking is so very different than how the federal government can do rulemaking and how EPA can do rulemaking. EPA really can't sit down at the table and negotiate with all the interested stakeholders. There are by far too many of them to try to do that with. Uh, the states, I told you, you know, we had 100 people at our first meeting, so it's even hard for the states, but you still have a better opportunity and a better ability to sit down with folks and really talk about things and try to understand from, from their perspective what's what is your issue? What is your concern? How can we address that and yet move forward? EPA, when they, when they conduct public rulemakings, it's, it's usually a, a written comment. Uh, sometimes they'll have 
uh, an ability to have different hearings in different cities and you can come and you can talk for three minutes and then it's the next person. So you really don't engage in a dialogue. And I think to be effective in many of these rulemakings, you need to have that kind of exchange. No matter how hard EPA tries, it just can't quite get past that hump of not being able to have a sort of this, this dialogue with, with folks on what makes sense. I think there's also a, a concern that uh, EPA may go too far. Um, as I indicated, we had controversy here. So you multiply that by how many operators are nationwide. And so the controversy just becomes that much greater. When you have Congress involved in it, which of course will be involved in it, and the White House involved in it, and they are still one step removed from actually having the dialogue themselves, it becomes a, unfortunately and unnecessarily just a bigger issue, a harder, harder to, to get through. Um, I guess my sense, though, is I know that EPA looked at the Quad OA. When it was developing Quad OA, it looked at what Colorado did. It looked at what Wyoming did. It looked at what Ohio's done and largely model the regulations after what the states had done. I'm sure with the hope that because the states had done this and it was working well within those states that perhaps it would not be as controversial at the national level as it has become. Um, frankly, in, from my perspective, from Colorado's perspective, most of what is in Quad OA is what we're already doing in Colorado. There's some difference, but it's not, I think, significant. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know why it's, it, it has become such a big issue for the federal government to go ahead and, and adopt this, why it is so controversial, other than the industry just doesn't like to be regulated. Sure. So. Well, and I, I wonder if it goes to also to the question, which I'm sure you've heard many versions of since November, but what's the role of states going forward right. In, right. in this new environment? Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, we are hearing that the, that the EPA is wanting to give states more authority to, to enact programs that meet the requirements in their states. And there is some, I, I certainly think that there is some validity to that. That the that the states states are different. You know, Colorado is different from Oklahoma and Texas and you know Illinois. We all have oil and gas reserves. We're all dealing with them, but we have we're just different states. So I I think states need to work closely with EPA. EPA needs to work with the states. We need each other. We absolutely need each other. There has to be a recognition that states need flexibility in how to implement their programs, but I think that EPA really has to set the minimum standards. The other issue in this regard, however, is uh, operators, I've always been told, like consistency. And if they're dealing with one set of requirements in Colorado and another set of requirements in any other state, and they're markedly different, that adds to the operation costs. And so having a consistent set of 
at least the, the minimum requirements that have to be achieved, I think would, would benefit the operators because they, they would know what they have to do throughout the country. So I think there is value in having one set of requirements, air requirements in this case, across the country. If I can get a little bit philosophical for a moment, I mean, you're the Department of Public Health and Environment. Mm -hmm. um, in your mind, is this chiefly a public health issue, an environmental issue? When you get up in the morning and, and think about how you're gonna deal with methane, are you thinking about air quality? Are you thinking about the climate or what? Oh, it's, it's frankly all of the above. Uh, I mean, methane is a pretty potent greenhouse gas. And so the, the direct impact from methane is climate change. Uh, it doesn't really have a significant health impact. Breathing methane is not really a, a major health impact, but it has ultimately health impacts because of climate change. And climate change is an issue that we, need, we all need to grapple with to the extent that we can reduce greenhouse gases and achieve the mitigation from that, it's very important to do that. And so I, I look at it as um, an environmental issue, but largely environmental issues point to public health. And this one does too. Martha, thank you very much for your time. Sure, yeah. Martha Rudolph is Director of Environmental Programs at Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment. I interviewed her for a series of videos we've been featuring at change.com, a website dedicated to informing Pennsylvanians about methane and the natural gas industry, why emissions are important, why controlling them is achievable, and how doing that can help grow Pennsylvania's economy. Again, the website is at change.com, but uh, take note, it's spelled CH4. CH4 is in natural gas. NGE.com, again, CH numeral 4, NGE.com. We'll continue featuring interviews and other content from the site on this show, but there is lots more to see there and much more on the way, so check it out at change, CH4, NGE.com. And that'll do it for this week's Pennsylvania Legacies. This is a production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, and our website is at peckpa.org. Lots of information and content there about Peck's work across the Commonwealth. You can get in touch with the show by sending an email to legacies at peckpa.org. Follow us on Twitter at peckpa and look for us on Facebook, too. We'll have a new episode next Friday. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rawlerson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.